Words have power. Three words, I love you, or another three words, I hate you, could create life, they could tear it down. Speaking words over someone has immense power. Think about that um, scene in Goodwill Hunting when Robin Williams is saying to Matt Damon over and over, it's not your fault. And it's only by saying that repeatedly that um, Matt Damon's character is free from this guilt in his life. The written word is particularly powerful. Elections are won or lost on the way people write about it. Some people pay thousands of pounds to spend four years reading the written word just so they can get a written certificate at the end of it saying that they're really good at reading. (laughs) And as one of those people, I can tell you that I've spent four years picking apart the works of Shakespeare, Dickens, and a bunch of people that I'll never read again combing through their language and trying to work out what these great writers can tell us about human nature, trying to work out how these geniuses excelled at their craft, trying to work out how nine grand a year translated to only six contact hours a week. (laughs) We would have long discussions about phrasing, meaning, and context. I met one professor who was writing a book about the use of exclamation marks in the work of one author. As one of the... uh, So... But the thing is, the most studied book of all, the most read, the most complex and the most vital book is one that we're quick to neglect. Perhaps, especially, if you've grown up in a Christian household and have been a Christian for ages, and so it all feels familiar to you, so we just leave it behind. But the Bible is greater than any piece of literature that I studied. Its words are more powerful than anything you or I could say of our own volition. Today I'm going to be talking about the constant, life-giving truth of the Bible, how important it is in our lives. I'm going to talk about how the Bible both points us to Christ and makes us more Christ-like. I want to encourage you not to plateau with your understanding of the Bible, but to go deeper, to take the approach of an overly keen English literature student and search for meaning upon meaning in this infinitely rewarding text. And if you're here and perhaps you've never read the Bible, perhaps you're not a Christian, um, I want to explain to you why we value this book so highly, why we think it contains the truth we need for our life. We're still going through 1 and 2 Timothy as part of our uh, healthy living course, and talking about the Bible wouldn't mean much if I didn't first read something from it. So we're going to read from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Timothy, we know from elsewhere in these letters, has grown up being taught about Christianity. Um, He is perhaps the only second-generation Christian in the Bible that we see in any detail. And it's telling that Paul isn't saying to Timothy, great job, you've learned about Scripture, now just get on with life. He's saying, no, continue in what you've learned, keep going. You need Scripture to learn, you need Scripture to lead. Scripture is essential for everything that you are called to do. 
And Paul's message to Timothy that you need the Bible is also God's message to you today. So first, what is the Bible? Considering it's the most widely read book in history with more scholarship on it than any other text and centuries of study behind it, uh, countless faithful servants whose job it's been to explain it, it's still one of the most misunderstood books ever. It's immensely complex, but it's infinitely rewarding and regularly challenging. It will throw up an uncomfortable but clear truth here in startling terms while veiling other truths behind dense texts that require time and effort there. In a world where information often gets condensed into short videos overlaid with texts that will tell you what to think and feel, this is a book that thrives on nuance, that speaks of a multifaceted God in three persons with many names and countless roles. It's a collection of poems, historical texts, prayers, letters, songs, and even possibly a play compiled by dozens of authors over many centuries because the word of God cannot be simplified into one human author, medium, or period of time. In order to convey the rich and infinite voice of God, he had to use many human voices and genres. God and the Bible, which is his word, defy easy definition. But... When reading the Bible, you discover that this complexity is part of the power. After almost 2,000 years of study, we still have not got to the bottom of its wisdom and its goodness. Yet, you or I could pick it up now and find within it something to enrich us, provoke us, teach us, build us up, or lead us to worship. This unassuming paperback book that I hold in my hands holds the words of life. And it's time we fell in love with the Bible again. I love that the character of God is unfolded in this book. I love that God created language just so he could speak to you. So I'm going to talk about how the Bible is reliable, how it's rich, how it's provocative, and how it's Christ-centered. The aim is to make us look a little bit more like Christ and to fix our eyes on him. So firstly, the Bible is reliable. I can't go into too much detail explaining the historical verifiability of the Bible. That would be a sermon in and of itself. But I will say that it has survived every attack, every form of questioning, and every heresy for almost 2,000 years. There is no new criticism against the Bible. All the ways people try and undermine it have been going pretty much since the canon was first formed. And they are all a form of the question, do you really say? Early heresies... Uh, such as one named Marcionism, which wanted to cut the awkward bits out of the Bible, and Gnosticism, which encouraged a special secret knowledge of God separate from the Bible, both sought to undermine the inerrancy of Scripture and are still used in various ways today. Uh, Let's drop the difficult parts of the Old Testament, or the God that I know personally wouldn't do what he does in the Bible. They're just new versions of things that have been leveled at the Bible since it began. But the Bible has stayed constant through it all, and it survived every attack. And you know, if you go to the treasure section of the British Library, you can see the Codex Sinaiticus, a complete version of the Bible from the 4th century, under 200 years after the last books of the Bible were written. And this is just the earliest full copy we have. But different fragments from earlier show us that the canon had been formed much earlier And we still have far earlier versions of the different letters and Gospels. As historical documents go, the Bible is unrivaled in its era for its closeness to the events and the number of texts of it we have. 
and hundreds upon hundreds of people have dedicated their lives to textual criticism, to researching the claims made by the Bible, and it has weathered every kind of scrutiny. The books of the New Testament were written by the apostles and family members who knew Jesus, as well as the mystery writer of Hebrews, giving us phenomenal insight into the teaching of Jesus and its application in our lives. It was written to eyewitnesses who were able to test the claims that the gospel writers made. And then Christian writers of the second century quote extensively from these scriptures, treating them as the word of God. You could put together almost all of the New Testament using the writings of people such as Ignatius, showing that this wasn't made up several centuries later, as some pulp novelist would have you believe. The canon of scripture that we have today is the same 66 books that all Christians have read and treated as sacred since pretty much the second century. And in this passage, Paul is telling Timothy that all of scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is the breath of God. But it was written by humans. Think of it as a series of brass and woodwind instruments. Each one sounds different. Those are the human elements that create the Bible, a collection of different voices and characters, each one shaping the Bible. You know, God chose really talented writers, literary geniuses with distinctive styles in order to create the Bible. And that's why it's such an eclectic mixture of books. But it needs the breath of God blowing through it to create the sound, the richness, the tone and the tune. One way to tell that it's inspired by God is how poorly humans and even the writers of the books come across in it. The Bible is full of language that talks about the wretchedness of human condition and our constant desperate need of God. These are truths that no human could realize of their own volition. It's something that requires the revelation of the Spirit to know how much you need God. And here's the Bible telling us that. Its testimonies are by the untrustworthy, the outsiders, and yet they still resonate today because of that inspiration. The writers had the breath of God flowing through them as they wrote, and the tune was the Bible that we read today. I'd encourage you to look into the reliability of the Bible more. I find it stirring to learn about the accuracy and the truth of the Bible. It really builds up my faith. Uh, The Bible Project uh, have an excellent podcast for better understanding the story behind the Bible. And there are dozens of books defending the Bible out there. I think uh, Luke once wrote a blog with a list of great resources, uh, like defending the Bible, and that will be in the small group notes this week, which will be linked to in the news email. But in a way, the Bible doesn't really need defending. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said something along the lines of, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. So let's look at what else is in this Bible. And my second point that I want to say is that it is rich. It is far richer and more rewarding than we will fully know in our lifetimes. But this isn't to intimidate you and make you think that it's inaccessible. The Bible is for everyone. So I often go and see orchestral performances with uh, Simon Thompson. Um, And we have, I would say, different levels of appreciation. So I will listen to something like Beethoven's Third Symphony, known as Eroica. And I'll be sat there. I'll mostly be enjoying it for the drama of the music and the elegance of it. I can listen to this 
and simply appreciate its beauty. This I find stirring. I, I, it just it moves me. I couldn't really tell you why. Simon, however, <laughs> knows everything about this symphony. He could tell you about the vast scale of the piece, how it was several times longer than any symphony that preceded it, and how the sheer number of themes incorporated into it was revolutionary in forming the modern symphony. A whole new movement known as Romanticism started probably because of this symphony. He'd also tell you about that when Beethoven wrote it, he was feeling optimistic initially, and he wanted to write it in honour of Napoleon. I'm now looking at Simon, hoping that he'll validate me for this. <laughs> but then Napoleon went from someone that Beethoven saw as a freedom fighter to just another despot, another kind of monarch. And so in the whole symphony, when you listen to it together, you can hear hope and despair crashing together, patriotic optimism meeting in a later movement, a solemnity that feels a world apart from this. Both Simon and I had a great time listening to, to this, um, and I wouldn't say that my experience of it was, any, was compromised by my lack of knowledge, partly because Simon told me all about it beforehand. <laughs> but Simon was able to take deeper meanings from the performance. I'm sure he's also aware of the elegance of the musical construction, perhaps the use of counterpoint and that kind of thing, to explain what exactly makes the symphony such a powerful piece of music, whereas I was just emotionally moved by its beauty. I think that's probably enough of uh, Eroica for now. The Bible is much the same. Anyone in this room can pick the book up, turn to one of the Gospels or the Psalms or perhaps one of the letters, and find in it accessible, heart-stirring truth that will tell them about God and his love for you. When you go deeper, perhaps to unpack the language, to learn about the context, or maybe you're even the kind of person that researches the biblical languages, you can peel back different layers of it. Every version of experiencing the Bible involves being built up, learning more of God. My point is that the Bible is infinitely rewarding, and there is always more you can take from a passage. I want to challenge people that feel like they know the Bible really well to approach a passage they feel is almost too familiar and to look at it with fresh eyes. I'm immensely grateful to have grown up in a family where my parents took me to church and we talked about the Bible, we talked about God. But an almost unavoidable byproduct of it, however, is that sometimes I feel like I have a familiarity with the Bible that could lead to dismissal in the form of skim reading. I sometimes feel like, oh, I've plateaued, I know this passage. But there is always more. Take the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And a really simple thing to do is just to ask questions of the text. So let's look at uh, just the start of Matthew 5, the first few verses, which says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And it goes on with more and more blessings. My temptation when this hits my Bible reading plan, is to skim over it because I feel like I know it. But Timothy is told to continue in the things he has learned. And we should always be seeking more from the text. Even without looking at the commentaries or finding out about the history, and I'd recommend that you do that, there should be things in this passage, even just in this first few verses, that look unusual to us. 
So Jesus went up to the mountain and his disciples approached him and he started to teach them. So here's a question. Was the Sermon on the Mount just to his disciples? And if it was, does that change our reading of it? Is all the teaching we read in the ensuing two chapters, is that just for followers of Jesus? And that changes the whole tone of the entire sermon, if it is. That's something you can read into. But then you look at the blessings. And there'll be many Christians in here that will be able to reel off blessed are the poor in spirit and just think, yeah, I know that. Think about how counterintuitive that is for a moment. What could be worse than being poor in spirit? And yet Jesus is saying the poor in spirit are blessed because they will have the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And I had honestly planned this section of the sermon before I unexpectedly had to mourn myself. Um, then, um, and, and even then, I was, as I was writing it, I still struggled to get my head around the concept of how can those who mourn be blessed? And then my brother died over Easter weekend and I began to get a sense of what this means. You see, the blessing that Jesus promises here doesn't mean that mourning will end but it does come with the promise of comfort while mourning. And as I've been through a dozen different emotions every hour, and I've struggled to process this, and I've mourned, I've known phenomenal comfort. The comfort of God, the comfort of family, the comfort of beautiful worship music written by talented people that have helped me fix my eyes on God. The comfort of my friends here at King's Church, who've really overwhelmed me with their love. I'm still mourning, but I can say that I have also been blessed during this time. Those two things have been dual realities, equally true for me. And this passage has taken on another layer that I could not possibly have anticipated when I was planning this. And then it says, blessed are the meek, and you could keep going with each blessing and asking, what does that look like? How does that work? I know that I've often struggled connecting with meek people. And yet here it's saying that the meek are blessed and will inherit the earth. Does that mean something in me has to change? His blessings are for the outcasts and the unexpected. And it should shape our understanding of what the kingdom of God looks like. And my point is this. Even the passages you know and love will reveal new things to you every time you go back to it. And the deeper you go into the story of the Bible, the more you get from it. The more you read about the Bible too, the more you'll understand the difficult passages, the ones that you don't know as well, the ones that seem to have more obtuse meanings. Read the whole book. It's all one grand and dazzling narrative about God, relating to his people, and even the bits you avoid speak of his character and point us to Jesus. The words of life exist in these pages, and you should never grow tired of reading it. Just as Simon has listened to countless performances of Beethoven and keeps going back, you too can read Ephesians 6 or 1 Corinthians 13 over and over again and find refreshing and invigorating truth about God. I must confess that when dealing with the death of my brother, my Bible reading initially took a hit. There was a numbness to me, and in that moment, I didn't think to turn to the Bible, even though something in me knew that I would find comfort there. When I finally did pick it up, my passage for the day was Romans 8, a passage that I feel like I know pretty well. But it talks about 
having a spirit of adoption. And my brother, the dad, was an adopted brother. And I just felt overwhelmed with the love of God. He knew exactly where I was at that moment. The Bible is many, many things. It's a balm to wounds. It's a love letter to his people. It's a story of ultimate victory. But it's also provocative, which is my next point. Let's take a look at what Paul is actually saying scripture is for. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And most of you will be on board with the teaching part. Yep, I'm keen. The Bible is useful for teaching. You've perhaps already signed up for academy, and you're keen to get some more biblical teaching in you. And um, I really would recommend doing academy. If you're thinking, I want more of the Bible, I want to understand it better, then academy is phenomenal for that. So most of you are probably all right with the Bible being useful for teaching. The bit where we get uncomfortable is where it says the Bible is useful for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible is meant to provoke us, to highlight areas of our life that need change. It's one of the key tools in shaping us and showing us what it means to be more like Christ. Think of it as like um, a contrast dye, which is a solution that they can pump through your body before an X-ray or a CT scan. And I believe that doctors use this as a way of highlighting irregularities in the scan, of uh, a means to a more accurate diagnosis. On the x-ray, you can see where the dye has traveled through your body. So that under certain lights, you get to see something inside you that shouldn't be there, it shouldn't be right. And the Bible is a bit like having that coursing through your body, so that in certain lights, it highlights something that is perhaps more of the world and less of Christ. How do these verses sit with you? He that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I'd just like to clarify here that there is no evidence that the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem and the camel probably wasn't talking about thick rope. That's how hard it is. Actual camel going through an actual eye of a needle for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how hard it is. How about this verse? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Obviously, these verses require sensible reading and thoughtful application. But we can so often be at risk of watering them down entirely to the point where we get away with not really applying it at all. Sure, we don't actually have to cut off our hands. We know not to do that because Jesus' disciples didn't. So clearly we can infer that this wasn't a literal command. But Jesus uses strong language because he wants us to understand the gravity of sin. I think it's fair to assume that he's maybe talking about sexual sin here. Are you taking extreme steps to combat it? Do you treat it with the severity of cutting off your hand? Similarly, I'm not telling you to hate your children. What that passage probably does mean is that you shouldn't value the comfort and security of your family over the mission of God. 
maybe. The problem is encapsulated perfectly by a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, who said, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be able to understand it because we know very well, we pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Pick up the Bible and you should expect to be rebuked, corrected, trained in righteousness. And that is an amazing thing. When we take the teachings of the Bible and Jesus seriously, we should be seeking to change, to become more Christ-like. We know there are parts of the Bible that we ignore or only receive half-heartedly. That's why you have to read the whole thing. Then you can't dodge those bits. We're aiming to become more Christ-like because as Christians, we've been called to change the world, be the image of God for those around us. It's a big mission. And Paul is saying that all of Scripture is absolutely necessary for us to be able to do that. Obviously, reading the Bible isn't what saves you, nor is acting like a good Christian, but becoming more like Christ is something that we are called to do as followers of him. Finally, it is Christ-centered. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Jesus is saying to um, people that studied scriptures intensely, he's saying, all of scripture, everything you've read so far, which in this case was the Old Testament, he's saying, that's about me. You see, the Bible is not God. That's what he's saying there. You can't find eternal life in the Bible. Some Christians in the world would risk worshipping the Bible. But honestly, in our culture today, I think the greater risk is undervaluing it than overvaluing it. But it is important to know that the Bible is all one narrative that hinges around Jesus. It points us to him. Jesus is there in Genesis, crushing the serpent with his heel. And he's there at the end of Revelation, ushering in a new creation. In Leviticus, two goats on the Day of Atonement take on the sin of the people. One gets killed, the other gets cast out. They take on death and shame, the two results of sin, pointing towards Jesus, who was crucified outside the city gates, taking on death and shame, the results of sin on our behalf. Moses leads his people out of slavery and into the promised land. That's a foreshadowing of the ultimate exodus where Jesus frees us from slavery into sin. Samson achieved more to rescue the people of God by dying than he did during his life. So did Jesus, who then trumped Samson by also defeating death. Solomon was a descendant of David who ruled his people and built a temple. Jesus was a descendant of David who will rule his people forever. And he has built the church, us, which is the new temple of God. Every question finds its answer in Jesus. That comfort that I found in Romans 8 was only possible because of Jesus' sacrifice for me so that I could be adopted into God's family. He is the melody that runs through every refrain in the Bible, the motif that holds the entire symphony of it together. Listen out for that tune whenever you open the book and it will show you the love of God. The Bible points us towards Jesus, the Son of God, who died for us so that our relationship with God might be restored and you could have eternal life. The provocation that I spoke about, those challenges, that may have put the fear in you. 
But once again, if we turn back to the word, we find that Jesus gives us everything we need to be able to do that in the person of his Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God sent by Jesus after he returned to heaven. And with the Holy Spirit in us, we are equipped to change, to reject the things of this earth for the glories of heaven. And it's also the Holy Spirit that enables us to read the Bible, revealing the truth of it to us. The Bible is able to give us hope because it speaks of Jesus' triumphant return, how he will make all things new and rule in glorious power. So, let's conclude, and if the band want to come up while I'm saying this. You need the Bible in your life. This book points towards Jesus, who is the source of our hope, our strength, and our salvation. The Bible tells us everything we need to become more like Jesus, challenging us in the best way possible. It is rich, rewarding, and it will continue to produce fruit in your life the deeper that you get into it. So there are three ways I want us to respond today. If you've never picked up a Bible before, we're going to have some Gospels at the exit. They look like this. These are just one of the books of the Bible, uh, and they're uh, stories of Jesus. Um, and if you've never picked up the Bible before, take one of these, read it, learn about Jesus and how he can change your life. Uh, the second kind of response, I felt when I was preparing this that there's a particular provocation to the people in the room who've been Christians for years, maybe decades, and feel like they've hit a plateau with the Bible when really our experience of it should be sort of exponential. You might be thinking, I know this, but God wants to refresh your love for his word. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you up so you can reveal new depths to the Bible for you today. And perhaps you might want to respond by going up to the prayer team at the end. And then the third kind of response. There are the people who know that they gloss over parts of the Bible because they find it too challenging. Uh, it's time for you to commit to embracing the Bible in all of its fullness, including the difficult parts. And we're, we're going to sing a song now of declaring that we will stand for Jesus. Um, and in order to do that, we need the Bible. It's necessary for shaping us. So as we sing, why don't you commit to um, embracing the challenges of the Bible, to learning more from it, uh, to carry on on this journey to look more like Christ. Mm-hmm.